Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. You know what you want to do? You want to join the travel club. Yes, because we go to some fantastic places. All you have to do is head over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com. Well, it's that time of year. You know I love fall or autumn, however you want to call it. I love fall colors. I love the weather, all sorts of things. Of course, the fall foliage is one of my faves. But the autumn has so much more to offer, and it's the month of Halloween. So today I have a special guest who is the owner of the house that the movie The Conjuring was inspired by. Yes, real events, real house, real location, and it is now a real place that one can visit. Yes, it is based on those real events. We also have places to visit for Halloween. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report. I have two sisters with a unique way to provide care and support to women suffering with breast cancer and breast cancer survivors. It's called Fight Through Flights. So the two sisters will be on with me with the Culture Report and you'll find out all about them and how you can support them in their efforts. But right now, you know what time it is. We've got some travel news. TSA renews railroad cybersecurity requirements. The United States Transportation Security Administration, better known as TSA, has announced the renewal of the requirements that seek to reduce the risk of cybersecurity threats that are posed to critical railroad operations and facilities. TSA announced updates to three security directives regulating passenger and freight railroad carriers in the continued effort to enhance the cybersecurity of surface transportation systems and associated infrastructure. These revised directives, which were set to expire October 24, have been renewed for one year and include updates that seek to strengthen the industry's defenses against cyber attacks. TSA specified passenger and freight railroad carriers are required to take action to prevent disruption and degradation to their infrastructure with a flexible performance-based approach that will be consistent with TSA's requirements for pipeline operators. Well, you may want to just check your group with United Airlines. You want to make sure that you know what group you're in and why you're in that group. They're reintroducing the window middle aisle boarding this month. Yes, they are. So if you travel frequently, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If not, then you know that when you get your boarding pass, there is a boarding zone on your boarding pass. And this zone or group tells you when it's ready for you to board. So they usually have the signage there and they usually make the announcements. We're now boarding group one or group two or group three. Well, they have changed or reintroduced how boarding is handled. So prior to basic economy or those no frills fares, they had this same boarding process. And so now it's being reintroduced. It was changed with basic economy so that those who don't have luggage or have the least expensive rates would board last. 
So according to the new boarding system, what will happen is that those with window seats will board first, followed by those in the middle seat, and then those in the aisle seats. Makes sense, yes? So it's not determined by your airfare, which is what they had changed it to. So now you're going to see pre-boarding, and that's still going to exist. These are customers with disabilities, unaccompanied minors, active duty, military, global service members, family members with children under two, and the premier 1K members. Then it's going to be followed by group one, which will be your first class, your United Polaris Business, first United Business, premium platinum, premium gold, and Star Alliance gold. And then group two, which is premium silver, Star Alliance silver, Chase, and certain other credit card holders and paid premium access. Group three will be window seats, exit row seats, and non-revenue passengers. Group four will be middle seats, and group five will be aisle seats. And then finally, group six, basic economy on domestic flights and those between the U.S. and the Caribbean or Central America excluding Panama City and San Salvador. So again, basic economy is still boarding last, but they've put priority or separated the boarding groups based on window, middle, and aisle in addition to their premium or priority boarding. Sometimes it feels like you're waiting forever, even if you're in group one. All of these announcements. <laughs> There's a very funny video that is circulating on social media, Jordan Peele, that is making fun of these boarding procedures and they are announcing everybody, every particular combination you can think of. If you can find it, look for it. Jordan Peele's spoof on priority or the boarding process for airlines. It's hilarious. <laughs> well, you know, as the holiday season is coming very quickly, there have been holiday travel alerts that have been published because scammers are out there. Yes. And they really target people during the holiday season because we're online a lot, maybe not paying as much attention because we're so excited about our holiday treasures and gifts that we're purchasing or trips that we're planning. So just to kind of beware of the scammers and you don't want to get duped by them. Some experts have put together a list of how to spot and avoid tricks that scammers use to target holiday travelers. Beware of tech support scams. Typically further in advance, you are able to firm up your travel plans the better the deals are kind of thing. So you want to make sure that you're really looking at who's offering it, making sure that any click-throughs are going to the right place. One thing you want to do is just hold your mouse over the area where they say click here. Don't click there, but just hover your mouse over and you can see the URL. And if it's not that airline's URL or that company's URL, then don't click on it. You want to plan ahead and do your research. Scammers prey on people who are trying to book last minute trips with the best deals. So make sure you're super alert when you're looking for those last minute deals. Verify the security of the websites you visit yourself. So you're looking for that HTTPS. If it doesn't have that S on it, it is not a secure website. I'm not saying that it's not a valid website. It just may not have that extra layer of security, which will help fight against those outside scammers that have tried to infiltrate those particular websites. So again, when you look at a website, look up in the browser, make sure it starts with HTTPS. 
HTTPS stands for Hypertext Transfer Protocol Secure, which means that the communication between your browser and the website is encrypted and authenticated. So if it's encrypted, it means that other people who are trying to go into the site can't see the codes. Seek out reliable reviews for your travel needs. So sometimes, you know, if it offers too good to be true, maybe it really is too good to be true. And it may not be a scammer, but maybe it's a company that just doesn't have very good reviews or they're often not delivering on what they promise. So you definitely want to look at reviews. You want to look at Better Business Bureau. You can do that by BBB.org. And then watch out for fake listings. Yes, scammers love tricking people. This is what I was talking about earlier, that when you see something, you're going to hover over and see what that URL is and make sure it's going to the place where you want to go to. And I usually don't click on any of those anyway. What I usually do is then open a separate tab and go there directly myself instead of clicking from another ad or advertisement for that. When you're looking at a holiday rental, you want to take a close look at the cost of the renting for any hidden fees. And don't fall for the free stuff. Yes, scammers always try to trick you with phishing emails. And phishing, again, is when they appear to be kind of like cloning other sites or they're trying to get you in with a free offer so that they say it's for one thing, but when you click on it, it's something else. Or it's just a ploy to get your information. Another one that you want to worry about and be aware of is like evites. Make sure the evite is really coming from the person that you think it is because sometimes they get a hold of someone's email and they send out evites and the person has no clue about what it is. So again, make sure you're checking all of these things and looking at where that URL is going. There are also hotel scams. These hotel scam tricks, criminals will target people who are taking long journeys and will target them after they've been exhausted from traveling so much. Hotels rarely will offer a free upgrade to your room for no reason at all. So you just kind of want to look for those things like especially credit card upgrades and asking you to provide your credit card information. This is just a way for them to get your credit card information. Again, making sure you're only dealing directly with that hotel and not someone pretending to be that hotel. And then you want to use a good payment method. That's really going to help with assurance because a good credit card company will really back you. Really be worried about a company who only accepts wire transfers because you have no recourse after that. Now, Hawaii, we're not talking much about Hawaii anymore because we're kind of like on to the next thing. But remember the disaster in Maui? And Maui has been slowly reopening, so they are moving on to their third phase of reopening. And these plans were announced last week that they will be getting very soon. The planned reopening of West Maui was supposed to occur in three phases over an extended period of time. But earlier this week, the mayor, Richard Bisson, announced at a news conference that the entire coast will reopen to visitors starting November 1st. The change of plans comes as the mayor declared the first phase of West Maui's reopening, which began October 8th, was a success, adding that getting people back to work was of high priority. Now phase two and three of the reopening will be combined and all remaining hotels will be approved to reopen next week. But let's not forget, there are some other issues like childcare and schooling 
that locals were worried about that more time would be needed to find permanent housing for displaced residents. And as of last week, there were still nearly 7,000 people living in more than 30 hotels in West Maui. So yeah, they still need some help if we can. But also if you're looking at vacationing, that's also a way that you can help by being there because people look for tourists for jobs and compensation, especially those in the tourism industry who may be working on tips and so forth. So that helps out too. And it helps getting the hotels reopened when they have more or higher occupancy. Now, the U.S. has issued a worldwide caution travel alert amid escalating tensions in the Middle East. Matthew Miller, a spokesperson for the State Department, stated that there was no particular reason for the advisory and emphasized their ongoing global monitoring of conditions while taking multiple factors into account when making such assessments. And although the advisory did not pinpoint specific nations to avoid, it recommended that citizens exercise vigilance in tourist populated areas and participate in the Smart Traveler Enrollment Program. You may have heard me talk about that quite a bit. It's called STEP, S-T-E-P, Smart Traveler Enrollment Program. This will give you access to information and emergency alerts. The U.S. State Department has mentioned the potential for terrorist attacks, violence, or demonstrations against U.S. citizens and interests. The State Department has urged Americans abroad to exercise heightened caution when traveling overseas. That's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, we'll have Javon's Travel Minute, a chat with the owner of The Conjuring House, and some spooky places to visit for Halloween. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com, and you want to follow us on social media. Yeah, we have some fantastic things to share with you, and we want to see what you're doing, too. want to chat with you, communicate with you, see where you're traveling, all of that good stuff. Just go to TravelingCulturati.com. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. Well, you know, sometimes we take a long trip and we come back from a wonderful vacation and we are just exhausted (laughs) and we're feeling like we need a vacation from our vacation. Well, here are some ways that you can make your return from travel less stressful. The one thing you want to do is to prioritize rest toward the end of your trip. So don't do anything stressful or exhausting before you leave. So maybe take at least the last day before you depart, especially on a long haul trip to just relax, maybe have a spa treatment or something like that. And then when you return home, return home a day early before you need to go to work. Two days if you can, but making sure that you have one full day at home before you have to go to work. It'll just help you unwind, Maybe there's some things at home that you have to take care of, but it gives you that peace of mind. And prepare a meal. You know what I normally do is I can either cook something before I leave, put it in the freezer when I come home, all I have to do is thaw it out. Or the other thing that you can do is just have an order out 
on speed dial and order extra so that you have enough food for the next day. I have a favorite place that I order my food from. And unpack your bags as soon as possible. I'm very guilty of this. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes it takes me a week before I unpack. But doing so right away will help. But another thing that will help you in doing that is have a laundry bag that you pack so that as you're traveling, you put your dirty clothes or your worn clothes in a laundry bag separate from those that you did not wear so that when you come home, you can just easily take those out, put them away, and then your laundry bag, you can just wash everything that's in it. makes it a lot easier for packing and unpacking. And then make sure that you don't overload your calendar upon return. Only do those things that you have to do. Prioritize that list and don't jump right back into a list that is packed with everything to do. Do some housekeeping before you leave so that when you come home to a clean house, there's not a whole lot you need to do unless maybe you have a cleaning service that can help you out. And then you're all ready to plan for your next adventure. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. It's that time of year when some of us go door to door looking for treats while others look for fright and the paranormal. Joining me today is Corey Heinzen. Corey has been investigating the paranormal for a few years. He's had the privilege of getting to investigate some of the well-known paranormal locations across the United States. Hello, Corey, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hello. How are you? Fantastic. So how did you get started on this path of investigating paranormal locations? Well, I've always had an interest in it, to be honest with you, but I didn't grow up in a haunted house or anything like that. My first experience was back in the service. Back in 2001, I was staying out on a Civil War battlefield with a bunch of other Marines, and we were spending the night doing like a camaraderie building thing. And that night, we got woken up by like gunfire and screaming and stuff like that. And there was like 50 of us out there. So Everybody witnessed it. So we stayed the rest of the night. The next morning, the tour guide came out to give us a tour of the ground and he told us it was a normal occurrence and this and that. And it's like, since when is that a normal occurrence? So I've just been fascinated by it ever since then. So Yeah. And I think sometimes when we're validated, as in other people were there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it wasn't just you. It's like if the tree falls in the forest and nobody's there, you know. So that sparked your interest of looking into more paranormal locations. Now, from the locations you've visited, which ones, or have any, raised the hair on your arm or back of neck? To be honest with you, a lot of people think I would say The Conjuring House, where we owned it for three years, but I got to say Penhurst Asylum in Pennsylvania. Mm. So what happened? Tell us about that. I mean, just the stories that if you read the backstory on Penhurst, it's just amazing. But I had an incident that like a goofball, I went off on my own after I was told not to. I went up to the third floor, which I don't know what it is about asylums and stuff like that, but they always say the third floor is the most active. And I went up there just to record on my own and try to find out some history about the place and try to talk to the spirits. And something came down the hallway. And I mean, you're talking a concrete hallway and you could hear the footsteps. And, you know, when you're looking at life through like a little four inch LCD screen on your video camera and you don't see anything walking towards you, but you can hear it, it kind of gets tense there for a little bit. And whatever it was, it walked up on me. And as it stopped, I just heard it let out a breath. And when it let out a breath, it moved my beard. That's how close it was to me. And 
I froze. There was nothing I could do. I was like, I'm a sitting duck by myself. And I'm like, this is how <laughs> this is how it's all going to end. And I tried to talk my way out of it. You know, I was trying to make light of the situation as much as I could, because that's my way of handling things is just to try to make it funny. But I got out of there as soon as I could. But I wasn't right for the rest of the night. I stuck around everybody else. Well, I can imagine I'm that person that cuts every light on in the house at night if I have to go to the kitchen. (laughs) As I walk down the hall and then come back, and then I kind of pick up the pace as I get closer to the bed. Like, okay, yeah, I'm that person. But I understand you and your wife purchased the property that was the basis for the movie The Conjuring. So when and, and why? What made you buy the house? We bought the house because we wanted to open it up for paranormal investigators to experience it. It was a location that had been shut off to the paranormal field, honestly, since Ed and Lorraine Warren had investigated it back in the early 70s. Now, granted, there had been a few teams that have been in there since then. Most of it remained undocumented because the owners had signed a non-disclosure agreement, basically saying, you know, don't talk about it, don't do this, don't do that. Because when the movie came out, it caused quite a stir in that area. And the owner was terrorized by living people, not the ghosts, but living people. We call them looky-loos, fanatics and stuff like that, that want to see the house and this and that. And they didn't want to have anything to do with it. So we ended up purchasing it to open it up to the field to further investigations and stuff like that and immerse ourselves, if you will, in an investigation because it's never really been done. Like you don't hear of investigators purchasing a well-known haunted property just to investigate it and study it. Mm-hmm. So that was our main purpose. Ah, okay. So was any of the movie filmed there? No, surprisingly not. From what we were told, it was supposed to be film there. But when they signed on the director, James Wan, I guess he is just so superstitious and so scared of stuff like this, which is funny because he loves horror movies, but he didn't want to have anything to do with the house. So they ended up moving the filming location down to North Carolina. And that's where it was actually filmed. Ah, Okay. And the Conjuring House is located where? Harrisville, Rhode Island. Harrisville, Rhode Island. And it is one of those homes when you just look at it. I went to your website. It does kind of freak you out just looking at the house. And maybe because I know it's the conjuring uh, (laughs) house. Not really sure. So the house is purely for investigative purposes, or is there any time that it's open as an attraction? It's open as an attraction. During the day, I know right now it's opened up for tours for people that register. They hold like up to five tours a day. And then at night, it's usually reserved for paranormal investigators. But the new owner, Jacqueline Nunez, actually just recently opened up camping on site. So there's mm. a few select nights where teams aren't investigating inside the house and people are allowed to actually investigate outside the house and stay on the grounds in one of the eight camping sites that she has set up. But not in the house. But not inside the house because okay. the one, yeah. Well, the one thing is, is that you don't want to mess up anybody's evidence. So you don't want to contaminate people's evidence. So if you had people outside and you got people inside, 
you know, you might get flashes of light or something from somebody outside and they see it inside. So what can we expect from a visit to the Conjuring house? And especially as we're at that time of year where I'm sure visitation increases greatly. If you're lucky enough to actually get a spot to actually take the tour, because we've been booked out for almost a year now. I'm not going to lie to you. Like the spirits, it's up to them. They're not a circus sideshow. I tell people it's kind of like fishing. You show up and you just wait and you just see what happens. You can't make them do anything they don't want to do. We've had people come in on tours and things have happened. We've had tours that have gone through and nothing's happened. So it's a hit or miss, to be honest with you. But a lot of people enjoy the tour because the story behind The Conjuring, they only got about 40% of it accurate when it comes to the movie. And a lot of people are surprised when they actually hear the real story behind it. And as well as like the actual American history behind it, because the house goes back as far as 1680. And I mean, it's still standing. For those who haven't seen the movie, and you know there's going to be a percentage of people who are like, no, I'm not going to see that movie. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us a little bit about what you're talking about as far as what the movie projected versus the real history of the house is. Well, in the movie, it takes a lot of liberties as far as the story goes, as far as the possession of the mother and the mother trying to kill the children and stuff like that. And that's purely Hollywood just taking the liberties with that. And that's so far from the truth. What ended up happening was Ed and Lorraine Warren, when they started to investigate the house, they weren't actually the first investigators to investigate. It was actually a small team from the University of Rhode Island called Pyro. And that was led by Keith and Carl Johnson. And for anybody that watches the old TV shows, Ghost Hunters, Keith and Carl They were on the first two seasons, they were the two twin brothers that were demonologists. They were 18 years old at the time. They brought in the Warrens because they weren't ready for what was there, and they asked for help. So the Warrens came in and basically took over the case, and the Johnsons got dismissed. That's why you don't hear about them at all. But the Warrens took over the case, and they built up a case, and what they were trying to do was send off everything to the Vatican as far as evidence, because they felt that the house needed an exorcism. The Vatican kept giving them kind of pushback on it, saying, we need more evidence, we need this, we need that. So they ended up doing a seance. During the seance, it went bad right from the start, and it almost ended up killing Carolyn Perrin, the mother of the family that was living there. They ended up having an altercation between Roger Perrin and Ed Warren, where Roger punched Ed in the face, and kicked him out for what happened. And the Warrens ended up leaving, and they were never welcomed back. And that was in 73, and the family ended up living there up until the 1980s. I see. Well, to be honest with you, I'm of the camp of have not seen the movie for certain reasons. (laughs) But I appreciate the history and the background, because we know that Hollywood does have creative license. We all know that going in. It's a movie, and so you have to present it as a movie. But there's always a true story or a history behind it. And it's nice to know what that is. So thank you so much for sharing the information with us. What is the website and when should people start looking into making a reservation or booking a spot for a tour? The website is www.theconjuringhouse.com. I know it's original, right? (laughs) But 
you can actually start booking as soon as right now. The new owner just opened up next year's schedule, I believe up until May or June. So you can start booking tours or overnight investigations, camping, what have you. So it's never too early to start booking now. There is a cancellation list. Unfortunately, like with the cancellation list, it's usually always last minute. So the bad thing is, is usually when that comes up and we contact people and it's like, hey, we got tickets for today's tour. They usually like out of state or something like that. So it's unfortunate, but I mean, that's just the way it works. Yeah. Well, certainly for those who are in state or in the area or close by, that'll certainly work for them. Well, again, thank you so much. The Conjuring House, you know, go with what works and what's obvious so people can find you. Theconjuringhouse.com is the website. (laughs) Again, Corey, thank you so much for joining me today. No problem. Thank you so much for having us. Well, we're closing out October with places to visit for the Halloween holiday. We'll call it a holiday. And of course, fall travel, or what we like to call shoulder season. We're starting off with one of the scariest movies and sites, The Conjuring. Now, if you're looking for some more scary places to visit Halloween, whether in your own town or you want to travel there or even make plans for the next year, here's some things to consider. Dubbed the Halloween capital of the world, Anoka is where you want to be. It's in Minnesota, and it's known for holding the country's very first Halloween parade in 1920, a tradition that locals continue to this day and have grown upon greatly in the past century. Anoka even has its own Halloween shop that is open on select days throughout the year. Then there's the small town of St. Helens in Oregon. It got its claim to fame when the Disney Channel filmed its 1998 original movie, Halloween Town. They filmed it there. Now locals carry on the exciting festivities with its Spirit of Halloween Town series of events that actually start in September. One thing I love about Hollywood sets and when they film things in particular towns, they leave a lot behind for tourists to participate in later. Now, the legend of Sleepy Hollow is a longtime favorite around this time and spooky story and legend that we've heard from a child and the town that its namesake hosts many fall activities. It's a quaint riverside town and it celebrates author Washington Irving's headless horseman tale. It does it year round, but especially around Halloween. Visitors can tour the historic 90-acre Sleepy Hollow Cemetery and visit Irving's grave. They can also see Irving's estate, learn about his life and legacy, and witness live reenactments of his spooky story. Salem, Massachusetts, which really needs no introduction, but I will. America's Witch Town, yes. The site of the infamous Salem Witch Trials in 1692. It's a prime spot to spend Halloween. There's also the Salem Witch Museum and a graveyard paying tribute to the witch trial victims. Then there's New Orleans. Yes, I love New Orleans. It's not just for Mardi Gras, folks. It's not the only time travelers go to New Orleans. Halloween attracts many tourists to New Orleans for its haunted history and lively party scene, of course. The streets open to locals and visitors will dress in crazy costumes and the costumes and voodoo shops in the area hold their own events as well. So there's just a whole lot happening. Travelers can also go on tours 
of historic houses and cemeteries throughout New Orleans and learn why it's often called the most haunted city in America. I've gone on one of those tours and they are really fabulous and they talk a lot about real history too. Now, Hollywood, you know, Hollywood does a lot of things, so why not have something great for Halloween? Hollywood Forever Cemetery, Dios de las Muertas, altar to remember the day during the annual Day of the Dead at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles, California. They also have scary movie screenings. That's, of course, a staple of Hollywood Halloween. And that's just one option for a lot of the seasonal things to do. There's also the popular Mr. Jack O'Lantern's Pumpkin Patch, which has multiple locations in the city. And Hollywood Forever Cemetery and other local historic cemeteries. And the Aquarium of the Pacific's Scarium of the Pacific event. Yes, you can dress up and go down the Las Vegas Strip. So Las Vegas may not be a place that you would think of for Halloween, but they go all out. Hotels on the Strip will be decked out in spooky decor, and there are plenty of on-theme shows and events that you can attend. And this year's attractions will include a blackout dining in the dark experience and an official Saw and Blair witch escape room. There's also the zombie burlesque show. And it's certain that there will be plenty of costume contests that you can participate in. But yeah, the strip will certainly be alive. I also want to talk about Day of the Dead, Dia de los Muertos. It's a traditional Mexican holiday that is celebrated November 2. That's for this year because it changes up based on the moon and all of that. On this day, it is believed that the souls of the dead return to visit their living family members. Many people celebrate this day by visiting the graves of deceased ones and setting up altars with their favorite food, drink, and photos. So it's not really a scary day. It's not about being spooky and Halloween costumes. It's really about honoring loved ones who have passed on. The ancient indigenous people of Mexico have practiced rituals celebrating the lives of past ancestors for around 3,000 years. The celebration that is now known as Day of the Dead originally landed on the ninth month of the Aztec calendar and was observed for the entire month. In the 20th century, the month-long festivities were condensed to just three days called the Days of the Dead. Halloween on October 31st, Day of the Innocents on November 1st, and Day of the Dead on November 2nd. La Catrina is one of the most recognizable figures of Day of the Dead, a towering female skeleton with vibrant makeup and a flamboyant feathery hat. The Lady of Death, worshipped by the Aztecs, protected their departed loved ones, guiding them through their final stages of life and death cycles. La Catrina that we know today came to be in the early 1900s by controversial and political cartoonist Jose Guadalupe Posada. Artist and husband of Frida Kahlo, Diego Riviera, included Jose's La Catrina in one of his murals, which depicted 400 years of Mexican history. His mural, Dreams of a Sunday Afternoon in Alameda Park, includes himself and a young child holding hands with La Catrina, who is dressed in sophisticated garb and a fancy feathered hat. Plans for the Day of the Dead are made throughout the year. Toys are offered to dead children and bottles of alcohol or jars of alote 
get offered to dead adults. Most families decorate their loved ones' graves with offerings, which often include marigolds. It's said that these specific flowers attract the souls of the dead to the offerings, and the bright petals and strong scents guides the souls from the cemetery to their family's home. Since 1960s, when the Mexican government declared it a public holiday based on educational policy initiatives, Dia de los Muertos has been observed throughout Mexico. The tradition was added to the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization's representative list of humanities, intangible cultural heritage in 2008. Here's the timeline. 1400, the holiday is established. The Day of the Dead is introduced to Mexico by Spanish invaders. 1960, it is declared a national holiday. The Mexican state declares it a public holiday. 2008, UNESCO incorporates the heritage into the representative list of humanities, intangible cultural heritage. And October 29, 2016, there's the Bond Parade, the 2015 James Bond movie Spectra featured a Day of the Dead parade in Mexico City. This piqued public interest, and it has now been a parade that has existed since 2016. There are other countries that have festivals honoring the dead. There's China's Ghost Festival. Traditional Buddhist and Taoists festival is part of the Ghost Month during which ghosts and spirits, including those of deceased relatives, come out of the lower realm. The 15th day of the seventh month of the lunar calendar, which is normally at some point in August. And in Cambodia, there's Ancestors Day, a religious occasion when the gates of hell are said to open up and the souls walk among the living. North and South Korea also have a harvest festival, Chuseok, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Harvest Festival and comparisons are often drawn to Thanksgiving. And the Nepal Jajarta, known as the Festival of Cows, is a celebration of death as well. It's usually August or September. So there you have it. Some Halloween, some fall, and some ancestor celebrations. When I come back, though, I've got the culture report, and we're talking to two sisters who started Fight Through Flights, an organization that helps breast cancer survivors and those still suffering with breast cancer to have a little support and care. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website. It's TravelingCulturati.com. And while you're there, make sure you join the Travel Club and follow us on social media. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report. And it's really of the latter that we bring you this particular Culture Report. And chatting with me today are Esther and Alicia Tamby, co-founders of Fight Through Flights, an organization that aims to empower 
and support the healing of Black women living with breast cancer and breast cancer survivors. Well, hello, ladies, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Good morning. Thank you for having us today. Absolutely. Definitely my honor and pleasure as we close out Breast Cancer Awareness Month. But it certainly is a topic that we have to talk about 365. How are the two of you related? We are sisters and co-founders. <laughs> uh, a bit older. She's three years older than I am. But yeah, we're sisters. I live in D.C. and Essa lives in New York. Ah, okay. So you're sisters. And what exactly is Fight Through Flights? So Fight Through Flights, is, as you mentioned, is a breast cancer nonprofit organization as we help Black women with breast cancer, providing them free travel wellness experiences and access to mental health, fitness, and nutrition resources. It was started in memory of our older sister who passed away from triple negative breast cancer. And the one thing that we love to do together was travel. So we're now giving back those experiences to those who need some joy in their life and some self-care. Now, since the catalyst for founding Fight Through Flights was because of your sister who had breast cancer. And, you know, I think when we have things that we like to do together, we want to keep those things going. How did you really parlay that from something that was so near and dear to you and your family to founding the organization and welcoming all of those who have breast cancer and breast cancer survivors to the same type of experience? I think for us, it wasn't too hard because when it came to the one year passing of Maria and we really wanted to honor her and we said like, what is it that we do and what is it we can do? And there's so many amazing organizations already doing work with breast cancer and there's, you know, a lot of advocacy efforts. There's a lot of research efforts, but we said like, there's more to survivorship and there's more resources that need to be available. So like, let's do what we know, which is traveling. And originally, I mean, it's called Fight Through Flights, but we launched during COVID and we didn't understand the severity of the situation and just what we were up against. So our first couple of programs, they were actually Staycation Serenity and road trip to recovery, which were home-based programs. So we had had vacation for serenity, for example, it was experiences in your home, whether that was a masseuse or a photo shoot, a makeup artist, a candlelight dinner, someone to come do a cleaning session and clean your home. And then it was coupled with fitness sessions, registered dietitian for nutrition sessions, as well as a licensed therapist for, you know, mental wellness. So we just really went with the situation that we had and just tried to adjust as we move forward. And we've had a lot of different programs, but that's kind of how it started up. And you said your sister, Maria, how long had she dealt with breast cancer? Her breast cancer diagnosis and dealing with it before she passed away. It was just about a little over a year. And what did you learn through that process that brought you to what these needs are? So we were fortunate with being able to have familiar support where was able to provide a great support system. Learning about breast cancer through her wasn't something, was more exposure, but working within the field. But it was more so as we founded the organization and started working with other women is where we've learned the most about breast cancer and the different disparities that are out there and what one goes through on their journey or with navigating their diagnosis. And why specifically Black women? I know you two are Black women, but why specifically do you think there's such a great need 
for your organization and programs for Black women? I think as we were impacted, but as we started doing more research ourselves and just seeing certain statistics, we noticed just how impacted Black women were from breast cancer. I mean, we saw that the mortality rates were at least 40% higher among African-American women than white women. African-American women were three times more likely to be diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, which is a really, really aggressive and rare form of breast cancer. And then you had Black women having the lowest survival rate of all racial and ethnic groups at every single stage of diagnosis. So when you look at these different statistics and the research that's coming out, you see the disparities that exist and then the disparities that exist to getting different wellness resources, whether it is nutritious or physical or mental. So we were impacted of it because of who we were. But then after doing the research, we noticed what the severity of the situation is and how Black women were truly impacted. And I was also going to just include the importance of representation. So among the research or even just looking up different programs, the need for that representation, which goes back to pretty much history of the distrust of the racial trauma in healthcare. So just being able to provide some type of representation of being able to see yourself and wanting to feel safe in a space while navigating this diagnosis. I think that we all really underestimate how impactful it is to see someone who looks like you or someone who can provide that sense of comfort just because they are like you. I think we really underestimate what that is. And then also how information is communicated, you know, to make sure that it's reaching people from all different walks of life. And again, I think that too is something that we greatly underestimate. And so it is very important that we have organizations that make sure that type of information is directed to various groups or a diverse group of people. Now, you talked about some of your resources that you connect women with. What's a longer list of some of those resources? We do a couple of things. Like, so we will depending on what the program is, we'll connect with different, as I mentioned, the registered dietitians, the licensed therapists, the personal trainers. But we noticed that in addition to those resources, it was just certain safe spaces that needed to be created. So we have like a program, for instance, Room to Breathe, where we offer one night stays in hotels. These are the resources of partnering with hotels and allowing women to just breathe during those experiences. But depending on different advocacy partners that we may have, we have different breast cancer organizations, you know, spreading what they do and things that are available for these women. Yes, it's absolutely so important to even just know where to go to answer your questions, because I think a lot of times many people have many questions and we don't always get the same type of medical care. I love your program. So far, you've talked about your self-care series, your staycation, which is where you kind of started since this was founded during COVID. But you also have two others that you haven't spoken about yet, which are your leadership retreat and your road trip to recovery. Tell us a little bit about those. So our leadership retreat, as much as we're in this space, we were also taking into consideration that there are a lot of Black women leaders in this nonprofit space, in the breast cancer community that are also doing the work with a diagnosis, whether they're actively in treatment, just currently coming out of treatment, or have been in remission for 10 plus years. So we wanted to be able to give them a space to 
rest and recover, but also was another way for us to come together and collaborate on how can we better the community and what else can we do to help Black women with breast cancer, whether it be during treatment and during survivorship. So that was our first international retreat that we took in Belize and was able to bring together five different women that have been impacted by breast cancer that are also leaders in the breast cancer community. And then your other was the road trip. Road trip to recovery. You're right. It's road trip to recovery 2.0. And that kind of fed off our first road trip, but we actually were awarded an RV and we decided that we wanted to do a road trip during um, Minority Cancer Awareness Month, which is in April. And we went across, I believe it was seven different states and partnered with different organizations, both breast cancer organizations, as well as community organizations and business and companies to provide experiences for Black women with breast cancer and actually, you know, really promote different advocacy work. So for instance, we did a retreat in when we went to Illinois, and that was big because it was a lot of women in Chicago who felt like they don't often get to come out and they're they're in the city and they don't get that relaxing retreat. So it was like full of glamping. You could ride bikes, you could sit by the lake and everything was funded. The meals were provided and we have these amazing sponsors that understand the need for these different programs. So that was great because we got to meet, I believe it was like over 50 women on the road and provide them with experiences. We partnered with a lot of different other breast cancer organizations as well. And we got to see the community work that they're doing and tap into their communities. So that was what we did with our road trip. It was a really, really great experience and we hope to do it again. How can others get involved? So many different ways. I mean, there's obviously in terms of like you can be an ambassador, fundraiser, a fundraising ambassador, which is available on our website. Definitely raising money always helps. But, you know, because of what our organization does, it could be if you have any connections with hotels or airlines or you want to donate miles. There's so many different ways. We're really creative. It's really about getting women out there. We really want to focus more on the flights and the trips. So any kind of hospitality or wellness connections or donations, it's just very, very appreciated. And just getting the word out on the organization, because a lot of the states that we've been working with, they didn't know this existed. I love that you mentioned donating miles, because you know, we forget that we can do that. And so many of us have frequent fire programs, and there's so many different ways you can donate. Your website? Fighttheroughflights.org. So again, that's fightthroughflights.org. And chatting with me today are Esther and Alicia Tamby. And please support them. I absolutely love what they're doing. And it's such a great need. And when you look at these statistics, especially for Black women and breast cancer, it's extremely important. Again, fightthroughflights.org. And we may be closing out Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but it certainly doesn't end with October. So again, fightthroughflights.org. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen. 
This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information.